In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a couple topics for you. Obviously, we're going to be focusing mo- mostly on coronavirus as we have been doing, as the whole world, it seems, has been has been doing. Um, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about um, the stimulus and some updated information on that. We'll talk about um, some Trump blunders uh, and a little bit about um, unemployment and the stimulus and a couple of other kind of a more philosophical discussion about why we have a relatively progressive stimulus package during a pandemic. Um, but when it comes to the individual crises in people's lives, we tend to leave them to float. And then we'll wrap up the episode um, talking about the recent allegations of sexual assaults against Joe Biden. So we have a packed episode today. Yep. But before we get started, uh, Let's do a little psychological check-in because it has not <laughs> been a great last few weeks for anybody. So, Michael, how are you doing psychologically? Uh, I'm I'm mixed actually because I had a really nice weekend. <laughs> yeah, and like, and despite all of the challenges of the world at large, I was fairly successfully able to focus on my small little bubble, um, which I needed to do. Um, and so that enabled me to recover some. What about you, Nathan? Well, so I had a fairly good weekend as well. I didn't really do much. I tried to tune out the news as much as possible. I Obviously, I still paid attention to it in a general sense. Um, but when I thought, okay, it's time for me to ease myself back into this and get ready for it this morning, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, what better way to ease back into it than to watch the new John Oliver sketch on YouTube (laughs) that is an update on coronavirus. I thought, yeah, this is probably a good way of me easing (laughs) myself into it in a way that's probably going to be funny and uplifting and like Hmm. lighthearted. And then I watched it and uh, towards the end of it, I almost cried. Oh my gosh. So not even John Oliver. So not even John Oliver. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was a great segment. Y'all should definitely totally watch it. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's rough right now. The country is not in a great place and we really need to do all we can as Americans, as uh, political activists to fight for policies that help those most vulnerable and to make sure that we are doing all we can to support our fellow Americans. I think that's absolutely right. And one thing on another, on a related note, actually, that I did this weekend, um, which I found very empowering and alleviating stress-wise, was focused in very in a very targeted way on exactly the actions that I could take to protect myself and the people around me, rather than feeling like there like the world is collapsing and is very scary and like there's this big amorphous terrifying thing that's unbeatable out there i like focus i watched a few videos on techniques for protecting yourself and others from the coronavirus like 
like developing habits, like not touching your face ever. Um, and you know, whenever you touch an object outside of your home immediately, you know, pre-rallying your hands and just like things that you can do that are really concrete that can be helpful and focusing on the fact that like the coronavirus is pretty wimpy and dies very, very easily. So if you're like, if you do those actions, it's not like you're going to just get it randomly, right? Like it generally takes relatively prolonged interaction where you've like touched someone with the virus or with particulates of the virus on, the, on their body. And then you generally touch your face. Like it's not, it's not translated just from the air. So like it's empowering to know where the disease is and where it isn't. And it's not just like around you all the time in this haze. And that, that felt really good. So yeah, I encourage everybody to go like search for facts about what is and isn't to be there to be scared of. All right, so let's uh, let's get started uh, by talking about sure the thing. stimulus package that was passed. So yeah. let's briefly re- reiterate what our criticisms last week were of the stimulus package that did not pass. Mm-hmm. So the first criticism was the fact that there weren't enough safeguards to disincentivize employers from laying off employees. That it was kind of just throwing money at the problem and saying please don't lay anybody off. Mm -hmm. Um, The second uh, criticism that we had of it was the fact that it did not provide any money to state or local governments. And then the third one was that there was a uh, provision in it that would make it so that people that were too poor to have paid any income tax in uh, their filings in 2018 would, would receive half as much money as everybody else in the form of cash payments, which we thought was abysmal yeah so and our recommendation at that time because of those criticisms was that the democrats were doing the right thing in trying to hold out and negotiate to address those problems and to get to a better place for a more progressive overall stimulus and the good news is we made a lot of progress yeah in the final bill yeah now this bill is far from perfect uh there are still some things to criticize about this bill absolutely but the criticisms that we made were addressed. So the first thing is that this bill does allocate $150 billion to state and local governments. That is wonderful. Yeah, that's huge. Like, as we mentioned last week, state and local governments are the front lines for this. And they are the ones, they are the people with the personnel and the infrastructure to be boots on the ground. They're the people making the calls about you know, whether to go into lockdown or to shut down businesses. And so being able to support them directly is really, really important throughout this whole period. Yeah. And uh, they also did get rid of the provision that would have punished people that were uh, not making enough to have paid in the income tax. So that's also good. Yeah, that's, uh, (laughs) I mean, that's good in like such an obvious way. Yeah. The fact that that was on the table in the first place just demonstrates how misplaced the priorities of the Republican Party is. And we'll definitely like, get into that a little bit later with yeah. our with discussion of like oh, yeah. the <laughs> unemployment stuff. Because, yeah, some of their criticisms of this bill are just so weird and strange. Well, what if people don't want to work during the pandemic and now they can just not have to work? Well, that's the point. That's what we're trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so then the third criticism, which was addressed, but I mean, not necessarily to a satisfactory extent, in my opinion, but still, at least it was addressed. 
was incentives for employers to keep employees on their payroll. And that does exist in here. So um, Forbes did an analysis of this, and they discuss how uh, basically during the period of this pandemic, which um, the allotted period of loan forgiveness during this pandemic is going to be over uh, eight weeks uh, commencing from the original date of the loan for a range of eligible costs, including payroll costs, rent, utilities, and mortgage payments. Eligible payment can be made to compensate employers for keeping employees on their payroll, uh, but it does not include an excess of up to $100,000. So what that means is that employers can apply for loans that would incentivize them to keep people on their payrolls up to employees that are making $100,000 a year or above. And they're eligible for 100% of loan forgiveness. Now, the incentives come where if the employer reduces the pay of any employee by more than 25% or reduces the number of employees as compared to the prior year, then that amount, that percentage, can be reduced. Employers are giving loans, which they can be forgiven for, in order to keep people on their payroll, but if they start laying off workers, then they start to lose the amount of loan forgiveness that they can get. That's a, And that's a really powerful incentive. And one of the things to call out is that, from, from all my reading, I, I haven't seen any limit on like the size of the business that can get this, which is really important because it's about incentives for to help with workers, right? So like any business can lay off tons of people and you don't want to necessarily, and, and some people might cast it in light of like, oh, well, you're, you're just giving, you know, money for really big and wealthy businesses to be able to, you know, not have to fire people when they shouldn't be firing people anyway. But the reality is that like without like regulating that those businesses won't be able to fire people, they will, and they will potentially lay off ton, like many, many people all at once. And so being able to say down to the employee level, um, you know, we are going to sponsor you to be able to keep people on your payroll is really valuable. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty powerful thing. Um, so those are, so those are some of the good things about this bill, but we do still have criticisms at the end of the day. There aren't really, I would say there aren't adequate safeguards to make sure that employers aren't laying off a bunch of people. I mean, there are incentives, but there aren't regulations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, which at first glance for me, like I'm always a little hesitant of regulations, like to my mind where incentives are um influential where they're powerful like it makes sense to have them just because it it enables people to make you know choices and understand the dynamics um of like their business a little bit better and it helps prevent you know one-off cases that are hard to anticipate but can be really impactful for individual businesses um but in this case you know we're talking about enabling it would be it would be less like a regulation and more like a qualification like if you want to receive this money you can't lay off anybody at all yeah. you know um and so yeah like pairing a regulation 
with an incentive like this saying it's literally not going to have any impact on your business for you to be prevented from laying people off. That seems like it makes a lot of sense. And you could see cases where employers would potentially not be interested in accepting this benefit um, and still lay people off anyway. So it would be, it'd be even more powerful if they could, if it could be paired with a regulation um, limiting you know, it limits the downsides for the employer and the employees fully at that point. Yeah. To your point, I would say that incentives without regulation is better than regulation without incentives, but mm. both of them together are ideal. Yeah. That's definitely the more powerful combination. Um, so, but overall, I think like this bill is a, a big improvement from the original stimulus that we had talked about. Um, and I think it's going to make. A, a huge difference for a bunch of people's lives. Um, and, you know, not just for people that are employed, not just for, you know, um, states, but also, you know, it, it helps hospitals. It helps, it really improves, improves unemployment benefits. Um, and so, and, and it provides more money for Medicare and Medicaid along with other stimuluses. So it, it, it goes a long way to, to help out a lot. So, yeah. Overall, now, I think a big win. Now, one criticism that I would say that a lot of progressives have had is that there is a $500 billion wealth corporate welfare handout um, that doesn't really have a lot of strings attached. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez actually pointed out that that does kind of put people in an awkward position when deciding whether or not to vote for this bill of either you vote against it Mm-hmm. And you are denying a lot of the good things that we talked about in this bill, or you vote for it, and you're basically signing a bunch of checks over to uh, the largest corporations um, with no strings attached. Mm-hmm. Now, originally, the person who was going to be in charge of the allocation of the money of the money from that five hundred billion dollars was going to be Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who, if you know anything about him, he is a corporate socialist to his very core. And I would not trust him with any of that because a <laughs> lot of the people that he would be giving money to would be people that he has previously worked with. Mm. So that part did change. It will be an inspector general along with an accountability committee that will be the ones in charge of allocating the funds. However, it has been argued that the overall effectiveness of this committee will heavily be determined by who is actually on the committee. Mm. So there's no actual provisions to say it has to be this person or it has to be this person. It could very easily be filled with a bunch of people that are very friendly to certain corporations. And it could still end up being a corrupt process. Yeah. So that is a major flaw in this legislation. Yeah, so at this point it's not it's not definitely going to be a corrupt process or uh process, but it has the total possibility to still be. So And knowing not, this administration, it's it's going to be a corrupt process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's supposed to go like the 500 billion dollars is supposed to go to, you know, distressed businesses, which there were certain provisions in the stimulus carved out for certain industries that are facing really hard times. Um, like airlines and hotels and some retailers got some benefits um, basically in the form of like a, a modification of the tax code. But the the question here is like, 
with so much discretion over where to put this $500 billion, you know, you think you'd already have industries and businesses kind of attached to that. So I, I kind of wonder like exactly where do they expect for this to be going, if not to specifically to, you know, identifiable select distressed industries. So we have discussed a number of criticisms about this bill from the progressive perspective, and largely those align with many of the uh, progressive Democrats in Congress's um, issues with the bill as well. Um, for instance, Bernie Sanders has some very specific things to say about, um, about this bill. Um, so Bernie Sanders did make a lot of the similar criticisms that we had was that there was not really enough incentive under the legislation to make sure that the largest corporations are not laying off workers. Um, and he actually made a statement where he was prepared to hold up the bill until stronger conditions are imposed on the $500 billion corporate welfare fund to make sure that any corporation receiving financial assistance under this legislation does not lay off workers, cut wages or benefits, ship jobs overseas, or pay workers poverty wages. So aspects of that did end up getting included in the final bill. So that's a good thing. But there were other criticisms along the way that thankfully... Uh, a coalition of the left in the Senate led by Bernie Sanders was able to defeat. But there were some Republicans that had trouble with how much money uh, people were getting on unemployment. Like several senators had problems with the fact that some of the people who would be on unemployment during this time period, you know, because we want people to be off work. We don't want people to be coming into work to uh, make people sick. They were worried about the fact that there are people that were going to be not working and that they might be making more money, slightly more money than they were making when they were working and how that would basically disincentivize people from working. Which is the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, okay. So if I were to give you $18 Let's let's make it an even more extreme example. If I were to give you, you know, a minimum wage to stop working, but ten dollars an hour at work, would you stop working? When you're like bills need to be paid and you need to feed your family? No, of course you would go to work. You couldn't afford not to go to work. So like yeah. the whole point is like set up the incentives to get people to do what you want, which is literally not go to work. Yeah. Also, just to be clear, this is temporary. This yes. isn't going to be a forever thing. If you were trying to argue that if we pay people more in unemployment than they were making when they were working, and that disincentivizes work under normal circumstances, that might make sense. But this is during a global pandemic, and this mm -hmm. would be a temporary alleviation. So just to be clear, the Republicans... And, and the, these were three Senate Republicans, uh, Lindsey Graham, Ben Sass, and Tim Scott. Their problem with this bill was the fact that it might give slightly more money to the working class than they were previously making. That's their problem with it. That's their pro that's They were considering trying to block this legislation because of that. And the progressive criticism is it doesn't do enough to prevent corporate layoffs. So just ask yourself, after hearing that, 
Who actually has your back? It sure as hell ain't the Republicans. So at the end of the day, it is no surprise that uh, the Republicans do not have your back economically. They want to throw you to the wolves of the economy. But at least something has been done in the Senate. Like at least a stimulus has gotten through to help address some of the major economic and health concerns of this uh, this pandemic. If only that could be said for the president. Now, I will say he did sign this bill, which, you know. A monkey could do. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Like, but like, I don't know, they pretty impressive. elephants to one, be able to do crap like that. One letter in front of the other. I signed my name. Is pretty. It's a pretty big. I mean, have you have you seen his signature though? It doesn't even really look like his name. It just looks like a bunch of squiggles. I honestly, I actually can't uh, criticize anybody's signature. Um, (laughs) I uh, (laughs) a quick tangential story. (laughs) I was um, I was at my old job at Dollar Tree, and I um, and we were about to file our SEC filings, and the CEO drops by my desk because his office was right by mine. He was like, "Hey, you want to be a witness on our SEC documents?" I was like, "Heck yeah, I'll be a witness." These documents are like. You know, what goes to the SEC, it goes to the street. So, like, somewhere in federal archives, well, on, like, Q4 2019 Dollar Tree SEC filings, uh, you'll find my signature. So, like, I, I walk over there, and I, and I take a pen, and he's and this CEO is standing over my shoulder, and I sign my name uh, just, just next to his, and his is this scrawling, beautiful, curvy signature, and I look like I had like a little spasm on the page. And like you can see, I see the disappointment in this great man's eyes <laughs> looking at my crappy signature forever enshrined on our official government filings. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose I probably can't talk either. Yeah. So uh, But but you at least we at least have other helpful skills. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually do my job, unlike our president. <laughs> yeah. But Trump has been making a lot of really wacky statements and a lot of really problematic approaches to this entire pandemic. I mean, first off, we're experiencing a major shortage in hospital supplies. Mm -hmm. And it's been kind of insane to see the extent of what people are trying to do in order to make up for that. There are... Uh, people that are coming to work in their Halloween costumes because their Halloween costumes had face covers. <laughs> Some masks. Because they don't have masks. masks. No mask. Oh, that's so sad. Like they're using these makeshift uh, face shields. There is this one picture of this woman that used one of those uh, those plastic pages that you see in three ring binders. Oh my God. And using that to try to protect her face because there's been major shortages. Although I will say it would be pretty scary to see Freddy Krueger come into your room (laughs) as you're like getting treated for coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So. And the thing is, there is something that Trump could have done at a pretty early date and probably should have done when we realized that this was going to be a pandemic but didn't until just recently. And that was invoking the Defense Production Act, which the Defense Production Act basically makes it so the president can compel certain industries 
to produce things that are desperately needed in a time of crisis. Presidents have invoked this before in times of war, so I would say it's perfectly reasonable for him to invoke this now. Mm -hmm. Which I assume he did in an equal way to a whole industry to try to get as many supplies into the market as possible, right? No, he only invoked it for General Motors to make ventilators. What? That's so weird. Why GM? (laughs) I think he's kind of always had a bit of a beef with GM, which I never fully understood, but... (laughs) Oh, my gosh. He has has beef with everybody. Seriously. Um, So, to cover up for his own administration's incompetence, he did... He made one of the most insane, insensitive, dumbass accusations that I've ever seen. He tried to make the argument that something was going on in the hospitals. And he said, quote, something's going on and you want to look into it as reporters. Where are the masks going? Are they going out the back door? And we have that happening in numerous places. Now he cites no evidence for that, to be clear. He continues, I don't think it's hoarding. I think maybe it's worse than hoarding. So Something's going on. Yeah, something's going on. You know what's going on? A goddamn pandemic. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a there's a, a coincidence here. Pandemic means a lot more sick people, which means a lot more medical supplies as the doctors yeah. try to treat them. While Imagine we are out that. there, while we are out there like praising healthcare workers, praising essential services during this time of crisis, like praising people that work in the healthcare industry and are putting themselves, their family at risk to be able to help treat people. He's out there accusing them of stealing, of, of profiteering off the pandemic and, and what selling masks at like five or six cents a pop. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's to cover up insane. for his own incompetence. He is without evidence accusing healthcare workers of stealing medical supplies. Yeah. You know why we have a you know why we have a shortage? No, no, it's not because it's not because I didn't take necessary action. It's not because um, we weren't prepared. It's because people are stealing. It's like it's like the perfect scapegoat. God, it's absolutely so stupid. Like, and and I, undermining like these critic this critical resource and and like we should be trying to get these people. We should be getting these people to use as many masks as possible. The more like. You know, the more care that they are taking to protect themselves, the fewer of them will get sick. Because we know that the healthcare workers that are getting sick are the ones that are not able to have proper protective equipment. And the more healthcare workers that get sick, at this point, they are a critical resource. The more of them that get sick and are unable to work, the more overwhelmed our healthcare system will be because the less capacity they will have to care for people. Because remember, like we are talking about an up like tons of people getting sick with this virus, but we're also talking about people that need normal medical care, and you know a hospital system with already a ton of people in it, and like the the idea that we should be trying to like you know pull back our use of of personal protective equipment is crazy right now. Yeah. And to make matters worse, he's been bragging about his ratings during this entire time. In fact, he even even pointed out that um, his press briefings have gotten up to 8.5 million views on cable, which is around the same as the finale of The Bachelor. 
you know why people are tuning into these press conferences, Donald? You know why they're doing that? Because they're scared. They're terrified. Because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And they want information. And you are the freaking president of the United States. You are supposed to provide that. They're not turning it, tuning in because they want to see you talk. They're tuning in because they want information to keep themselves safe. But big, big surprise that our reality show president wants a reality show audience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then what might be the worst of it is so he's been spending a lot of time complaining about how mean governors have been to him. Like he said, quote, all I want them to do very simple. I want them to be appreciative. I don't want them to say things that aren't true. I want them to be appreciative. We've done a great job, hmm. which no, you haven't. Yeah. And you sound and, like a freaking crime boss. Like, yeah, I just want you to show some respect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then when he was talking about Mike Pence's efforts, he straight up said um, that he told Mike Pence not to call the governor of Washington, who is Governor Jay Inslee, um, and that you're wasting time with him. Don't call the woman in Michigan. They don't treat you right. I don't call. So he's talking about Governor Jay Inslee from Washington and Governor Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan, who have been critical of Donald Trump because he has been screwing everything up. And he's basically saying, we're not even going to talk to the governors because they've been saying mean things to me. So screw all the people in their state. They can all die. I don't give a damn about them because the governor of their state is being mean to me. This is what happens when you have an authoritarian president who views the government as a means not to protect people, not to promote the general welfare, but to promote himself. He views the attorney general as his own personal lawyer. He views the treasury as his own personal uh, lapdog. In fact, he wanted the checks sent out to Americans to have his name on it. The government does not exist to allow the president, whoever the president is, to fulfill some power fantasy. Mm -hmm. The president serves the people, not the other way around. All right, and now time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So Nathan, what's our tip for good this week? Our tip for good this week is actually going to be something that is lighthearted. Because it feels like the last few times we've done Tips for Good, it hasn't actually been that lighthearted. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to actually address that this time because this entire episode and the last few episodes that we've done have just been so depressing. I mean, they've been depressing for a reason, but they've been really depressing. Yeah. So we're going to give a tip to try to make things just a little bit lighter. Now, that doesn't mean that we should distract ourselves from the realities of today. Mm -hmm. But you should take mental breaks sometimes. Yeah. And our tip for that is to tell a funny story. Mm -hmm. Like, call up a friend of yours, maybe Zoom chat them, Skype them, whatever, and just talk to them for a bit and just tell them a funny story. Yeah. And have and them tell you a funny story. And that's to help them. And it's also to help you, like, to help remind yourself of 
the fun, funny, lighthearted things that happen in your life, right? Like when we wake, we decided that we each wanted to tell a story to embody this tip for good on the podcast. And while it's like trying to think of one, I had a good chuckle at a number, a number of occurrences over the past few days and weeks. And, you know, it put me in a better mood. So it's for you. It's for your friends. Go ahead and tell a story. So Nathan, why don't you tell a quick story for everybody? Yeah. So the other day, I was uh, teaching a class online, and Blake, uh, my service dog, she was sitting right next to me, and she was she was on her bed. I have a little bed right next to my desk that she lies on, and so she has a very scratchy tongue and a very long tongue, and sometimes she likes to randomly lick things, and because her tongue is so scratchy, sometimes it gets stuck on things, <laughs> so... I hear this scratchy sound on Blake's bed and I think, Oh, is she scratching herself? So I look down and I notice that her tongue is wrapped under her mouth. So like, you know how with dogs tongues, it's hanging out of their mouth. Mm -hmm. It is wrapped on the bottom of her mouth and it's just stuck against (laughs) the bed. (laughs) And she's just kind of pulling her, trying to pull her head, trying to get it unstuck. (laughs) And I'm just like, Blake, you idiot. What are you doing? (laughs) And like her eyes just kind of look up at me for a second as if to be like, don't judge me. I'm beautiful. (laughs) And finally, I'm just like, Blake, just just stand up. And she stands up and her tongue just flops back in her mouth. I was like, it really was that simple, Blake. What? You don't get your tongue stuck out of your mouth sometimes? (laughs) You know, I no, I I don't. (laughs) That is so funny. Oh my god. So what's your story, man? See, that's why that's why we all need pups. They they bring so much <laughs> joy to our lives. Yeah. Um I I have a quick story about about Bree. So we were um we were uh zooming with her brother and sister and their spouses the other day. And um they started talking about Little House on the Prairie, which is a old TV show I gather. Um and I was like, "Yeah, I've never seen it." And they were all like really surprised and appalled, which it's like, I think it's in black and white. Like I'm not gonna, I don't, I'm, I shouldn't <laughs> be expected to watch these TV shows, but anyway, they start telling me about it and like just telling me all these different facts. And I just like, I don't really care at all. And, um, and then I just asked jokingly, well, how big is the house? <laughs> and, and, and Bree just looks at me and like in such seriousness, like she's like, it's quite small. <laughs> <laughs> It was just like <laughs> you don't say. She was just so serious. Like, so what no, you're no, saying no. It's, is it's quite it's a small. Very, it's a very delineative name, then. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, I got that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I we both lost it. It was so funny. But where is it? Like, where is the house? It's on the prairie. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's tips for good. So now we're going to bring a relatively shorter segment to you um, focused on basically one kind of philosophical question. Maybe it's more of a policy question, but it's basically if we address the crisis of the pandemic now with individually focused economic stimulus, so things like improving unemployment, um, improving Medicare and Medicaid, uh, allowing people to not have to pay their rent 
um, for a short period of time. You know, why do we feel like it's okay to do that during a large-scale economic crisis, have these very individually focused solutions, but not when we have crises on an individual level? Um, and so, you know, like the, the common counter-argument to that is like, well, you know, we just, we can't afford to do a $2 trillion stimulus all the time. And that's really a red herring because that's really not what we're talking about. You know, if, you, if you're talking about making sensible, uh, like, welfare support programs, it, it, it doesn't even, it doesn't certainly cost that much money. And the thing is, like, you can have a much deeper conversation about where we're spending in our government because we spend a tremendous amount of money on on defense and a number of other programs that maybe don't need to be so large. But at the end of the day, like, it's curious to see how much our priorities for helping individuals change during very strange economic times, but when it just affects the poor or when, like the everyday crisis of being on a lower socioeconomic status in America, like in that everyday crisis for individuals, we aren't paying attention and um, we tend not to, to fight so hard for that. Um, yeah. So one thing that I think often uh, that comes down to is an inconsistent application of a principle. Mm -hmm. And that principle is often, well, more government equals less freedom. What I would contend about that is a civil libertarian argument. Because the reason on principle why you should be wary of large government is because of the principle of not wanting people or external forces to control your lives. Mm -hmm. But as it stands, businesses and corporations are so powerful in the United States that effectively they've kind of become a fourth branch of government. Mm -hmm. Like they control what you do. Oftentimes they control what you wear and they control your economic situation. And in a capitalist country, your economic situation is more deterministic of how your life is going to be than a lot of the laws that are imposed by the government. Yeah. So what that means is that in order for there to be a certain level of freedoms, there has to be uh, government checks and balances into that effective fourth branch of government, while also propping you up with welfare programs that protect you from falling behind in a capitalist system. Yeah. So let, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about that one, that piece as well, because another common counter argument to a high level of social welfare. Um, so basically like a high floor on people's economic status is that is, is the thing we've been hearing from uh, Republicans even about this bill is that if we provide too much comfort or support for people um, who, who desperately need it, then it will disincentivize them from trying to get out of economic insecurity. Basically it's, it's the, it's the flip side of a boot of the bootstrapping like argument, like if you make it so that people don't feel like they need to bootstrap, 
if we make it f- feel like people don't need to claw their way out of deep economic insecurity, then they won't do it. And so our economy and our people will overall be worse off. And so if that applies during a pan- uh, during like normal economic times, why doesn't it apply during a pandemic? And there are really like two major um like really a couple of major reasons why that might be the case. One is just time, right? Like the argument might be that, well, pandemics are temporary, um, but normal economic support is um, all the time. And like that, that is true in a general way, but there's no reason why you can't structure um, social welfare to, to like incentivize people to like want to help themselves and to help support people to help themselves. Cause the reality is that like economic insecurity is rampant and our social welfare programs are helpful, but they don't make you comfortable. And so it's not like people like the myth of riding fat and happy on the welfare state just really doesn't exist. Like there, those people are not out there like they might be there might be a couple people in the corner cases but we shouldn't be making like our tailoring our policies to the rare case where people might be able to take advantage also we are operating under the assumption that if the crisis doesn't affect everybody then the crisis isn't worth addressing yeah which really breaks down because a lot of the way that we're solving this crisis is on an individualized level. We're giving individuals money to help alleviate their struggles during this time. Well, there's no reason why you can't scale that down from, you know, 10 or 20% of people that might be unemployed during the crisis and scale it down to the 4 or 5% of people that are unemployed during a normal time. And furthermore, the fact that we are allowing for... um treatment and testing to be subsidized during this crisis there's no reason why testing treatment and other medical care should not be subsidized even out of crisis because well first off i've made this point before the fact that there are some people that might get sick during this pandemic go to the hospital and hope that they have corona because then it would be paid for that is fundamentally terrible that is a awful situation to be in yeah But as it stands, according to the Yale study on Medicare for All that we have cited several times on this podcast, without Medicare for All, approximately 69,000 people die every year. Mm -hmm. And even though that's not affecting everybody all of the time, it is the potential to affect any one of us at any given time. Sure. Maybe not the richest Americans, but certainly most people in the country. You know, everybody in the country is susceptible to some type of medical issue putting their life in jeopardy, and most people in the country are susceptible to that financially bankrupting them. Yeah. And so I would say like a few things. One, the point about um whether we can pay for it under a normal uh, under normal economic times is a tactical question. Right, like whether we can or can't pay for it is is a challenge to be solved, but it's not something that makes it principally a bad goal to have. And so, I'd encourage everybody to think about it in like in principle: Do we want to get to this end state? In principle, do we want to have this program in place? And to to parse that issue, 
um, I would say like if you think these programs are a good idea during a pandemic on an individual level, right? Like not, not on a whole societal level necessarily, but like for the most vulnerable, which and really just that group of people has been expanded during the pandemic. Really highly vulnerable people. There are there are more of them now because of the pandemic. But so if they're desirable now, what makes the difference between them being desirable for individuals now and and them being desirable for individuals during normal times? You know, like it's no one's fault that the pandemic is affecting people economically. And similarly, like it's not it's not your fault that you're in deep poverty for the most part like you probably started at a really challenging place and like maybe you haven't had your support network and like there are there are lots of reasons why you might end up in a really challenging economic spot if we think that it's really terrible for people to go into debt or die due to the coronavirus why do we think it's less terrible for people to go into debt or die because they get cancer or some other illness like in principle, there's there's truly no difference except for scale. Yeah. And the last point that I want to make on this is the common the common argument that you hear from opponents of any type of welfare state or any type of government involvement, at least when it comes to uh, giving people a social safety net, is the S word, socialism. Mm-hmm. And that is also kind of a red herring. Because the word socialism really has become a fear word, a fear-based word. There are so many other programs that denotatively are socialist that nobody bats an eye at. Roads, bridges, the fire department, the police force, the military. Denotatively, those are socialist and no one bats an eye at them. Because people recognize that those are necessary to have a society. In fact, there was actually this really interesting moment that I saw from this Fox News host who was talking about giving checks to Americans as was referencing that Andrew Yang was the run that originally was talking about the idea of cash payments in order to alleviate uh, financial suffering. And someone, someone that she was talking to brought up, oh, but, but isn't that socialism? And she was like, well, well, no, because like a lot of people support it and they do it in Alaska. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. It, it's still socialism. Even if people support it, it's just that socialism is a scare word that doesn't really mean anything anymore. Mm-hmm. So rather than using the word socialism to shut down any forms of debate, Maybe try addressing the merits of the policy itself. Address the facts of the policy, the principle of the policy, and the merits of it, and just leave scare words out of it because Mm -hmm. those are used to shut down conversation before they can happen. Yeah. And just to quickly wrap this up, I want to talk about a couple portions of the stimulus that are clearly a good idea now and kind of draw connections to why they would still be a good idea under normal economic times. So like right, like on average over the past 2 years we've had between 3.5 and 4% unemployment. And the people that are that are unemployed um, can file for unemployment insurance or just unemployment. Um, now they can only receive that benefit for 26 weeks, right? And the maximum benefit varies by state and can be, you know, controlled by the states, but for instance, 
um, I looked at Virginia because that's where I live and it's pretty representative. And in Virginia, you can you get a maximum benefit of three hundred and eighty-seven dollars a week for a total of fifteen hundred and fifty dollars a month, which is about for a forty-hour work week nine dollars and seventy cents an hour. So if you were to get that for the whole year, you would only make eighteen thousand dollars. We know that that base level unemployment is not enough to live on. And that's why, as part of the stimulus package, one of the first and most important things they did was add 600 bucks a week to unemployment benefits. So they added a significant amount of money per week because they knew that normally you couldn't live on the amount that they provide for unemployment, even at a maximum benefit. And that's only if you make substantially more than that amount of money because the less money you make, the less unemployment you're eligible for. So if it makes sense for us to actually want to support people economically now, why doesn't it make sense for us to be able to actually support people's incomes when they are the normal status quo, 3 to 4% unemployed all the time? At the same time, some um, of these benefits can be used for, you know, if you have um, a child that has childcare shut down and you can now collect unemployment to help support that. That sounds a lot like universal childcare <laughs> to help offset the cost of childcare. Also, SNAP and child nutrition um, both got a bunch of money. That's clearly self-explanatory. If, it's, if we want people to eat during a pandemic, why don't we want to support people eating during a normal normal during normal economic times it's like so clear that these are good policies and a good idea and paying for them is a tactical question not a principled one and now it's time for one of our favorite segments asshat of the week so nathan who is our honorary asshat this week well, this week, our asshat is Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick. Oh, man, he sounds great. What did he do? Well, he made an interesting argument, which kind of contradicts everything we know about morality and humanity and such. Mm. Um, and trying so, to get the old vote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ironic. Um, so... He was on Tucker Carlson's show, and... A great start for everybody. Yeah, great start. <laughs> and he was talking about the effect that coronavirus has had on the economy and what he's willing to do in order to protect the economy, which is always code for protect the stock market, a.k.a. the richest American. Here's what he had to say. No one reached out to me and said... As a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that America loves for your children and grandchildren? And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. And that doesn't make me noble or brave or anything like that. I just think there are lots of grandparents out there in this country, like me, that what we care about and what we love more than anything are those children. Let's break apart what he's actually saying. He's basically saying that grandparents, like himself, should be completely willing to risk the fact that they can die from this disease in order to protect the economy. And if you think that we are dramatizing or overstating it, here, here's another quote. 
Grandparents all want to live. We want to live with our grandchildren for as long as we can. But the point is, our biggest gift we can give to our country and our children and our grandchildren is the legacy of our country. Wait, wait. He's literally directly drawing a contrast saying, I know you want to live, but, you know, the economy. Yeah. We can't afford for you to live. <laughs> and, and and this this is him arguing it's time for us to get back to work. He's basically saying we should all get back to work. We, could sh- we should stop quarantining ourselves. And remember the statistic that Michael read in the last podcast, which was that if we do nothing, if we do what this guy says we should do, that 2.2 million people are per, could potentially die. Yeah. If, if you don't he's think that arguing, will tank the economy. <laughs> yeah. He's arguing totally worth it. 2.2 yeah. million people dying for the stock market. Totally worth it. And the, so the crazy thing is this, like... This, at this point, is not just one kooky governor from Texas. It has been gaining a lot of traction in, like, far-right and increasingly center-right, like, conversations. It's on Fox News. It's on, like, multiple outlets. Like, at this point, yeah, we've heard it from a number of sources. And that is insane. The idea that... We should be taking a segment of society and saying, like, sorry, keeping you alive is just not worth the economic cost. Yeah. It's almost like we do that with, like, 70,000 Americans a year who are uninsured. <laughs> yeah. Huh. yeah. It's almost like that, isn't it? It seems pretty unthinkable to me. <laughs> yeah. And I also find it hilarious that a Republican on Tucker Carlson is arguing about making the ultimate sacrifice to protect your children and your grandchildren when Fox News as a network can't be bothered to make minor sacrifices to protect children and grandchildren from climate change. Yeah. Look, if you want to make a sacrifice, make a sacrifice for climate change, not this crap. You might be willing to sacrifice yourself. I ain't willing to sacrifice my grandparents or my parents. So you can go screw yourself. Seriously. So... Congratulations to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and honestly, every Republican that is making this crazy, sadistic, evil, like fascist argument for being our asshat of of the week. week. And now we will be setting all our lightheartedness and humor aside um, for this next segment, which is super serious, and we are going to be taking super seriously. And it is the alleged uh, the alleged sexual assault um, by Joe Biden, um, alleged by Tara Reid. And I would just like to give a trigger warning. Um, we are going to be talking about a very graphically described sexual assault in this segment. And if that is something that due to past experiences or due to anything is going to trigger you, then please don't listen to this segment. Mm-hmm. Um, That's why so, I put it at the end so that you could just cut it out. Exactly. So let's talk about this. So Joe Biden 
who is at this point the presumed nominee for the Democratic Party, has been accused of sexual assault by a woman named Tara Reid, who was a staffer working for Joe Biden when he was in the Senate in 1993. Now, to give a little bit of background on Joe Biden's history with sexual misconduct discussions, let's not forget that around when he was first announcing that he was going to run, there were several women that came forward to talk about how he had inappropriately touched them in ways that made them feel uncomfortable. Now, it was hair sniffing. It was, um, you know, putting his hand on their shoulders when they didn't want him to. Yeah. Hugs and that lasted too long, touching foreheads, things like exactly. that. Exactly. And these were all things that there were, there were pictures of. There was plenty of witnesses for. There was no denying that those happened. And Tara Reid was actually one of the women that had come forward and talked about that. And there mm. were several witnesses that confirmed that he was a little bit more aggressive with her. Yeah. So all of that is true. And at the time, he apologized for it. Mm -hmm. He said that he was going to try to do better, that he was from a different time in which that was considered okay. And he was doing it um, basically as uh, a the personable, likable guy that he thinks himself as but and at the I, time i thought that was kind of a crappy excuse especially because it, let's be clear like we don't want to gloss over this this is not like you giving your friend a hug which you should still get consent for but like yeah. you have a, a a personal like close friendship relationship this is some this is a man in a position of power who is in a professional context, hugging or touching women. Like, imagine if your boss hugged a subordinate for an inappropriately long amount of time. It would be, first of all, really strange and make you really uncomfortable. And more importantly, it would make that person uncomfortable and they would feel almost certainly without the ability to call that out as being inappropriate or unacceptable. Yeah. I couldn't imagine hugging my boss. Yeah. And and this is in the government. Like, yeah. let's Joe not Biden, gloss over that that is inappropriate behavior. Yeah. As the vice president and before that a senator, he has a lot of power. And that cannot be ignored when looking at... Uh, intimate contact between himself and other individuals. And there have been a few examples of women who have said that they have felt really creeped out by that. For, for example, um, Lucy Flores, who uh, was a candidate for uh, lieutenant governor of Nevada, she wrote in March of 2019, so about a year ago, that Joe Biden had kissed her on the back of the head at a campaign event in 2014. And she wrote, quote, I couldn't move. I couldn't say anything. I wanted nothing more than to get Biden away from me. Mm -hmm. And this was a year ago. This was written about a year ago. So this brings us to the allegations that have been leveled against him by Tara Reid, who, by the way, had originally discussed how she was one of the women that had been appropriately inappropriately touched by the vice president back when she was a staffer. And this had, that had been confirmed. 
But according to her, at the time, she hadn't told the whole story. And the reason why she hadn't told the whole story was because it was easier just to talk about the things that everybody else was talking about. Because a lot of other women were talking about examples of just inappropriate touching that might not have risen to the level of sexual assault, but still made them uncomfortable. And that often does happen with sexual assault survivors. Sometimes sexual assault survivors tell as much of their story as they're comfortable telling. And at the end of the day, the only person that is entitled to knowledge of their story is them. Absolutely. And the decision to come forward and discuss a sexual assault is the choice of the person who was assaulted. Mm -hmm. Nobody else is entitled to that story. So I'm going to go ahead and describe what the allegation is, what she says that um, he did. I would advise people to uh, listen to her original interview, um, which was on the Katie Hapler Show podcast, in which she discusses it in detail. I'm going to go ahead and summarize what the allegation is. So she says that he pushed her against a wall in a secluded area. He began kissing her, and then he reached under her skirt and then penetrated her with his fingers. And when she pulled away... He responded by saying, Come on, man. I heard you liked me. And apparently later, Joe Biden told her, quote, You're nothing to me. Which Tara actually describes as being somewhat worse than the assault itself because of how much she looked up to him. And she said that she also described how this made her feel like an object, like she wasn't a person from then on. And whenever she was in the room with Biden, she felt like she was just a prop for him. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about the corroboration that has been, uh, that has happened so far, because yeah. this has not been reported in a lot of mainstream sources. I'm reading what I've read to you so far is uh, from Vox. Um, it was also reported in by The Intercept. And in fact, The Intercept actually reached out to a friend of Reed's and also her brother, who confirmed that at the time, in, in 1993, she did actually tell them about what happened. That's two separate people confirming that she uh, discussed it at the time. Mm -hmm. and Which in is fact, strong. Her, yeah. That is strong evidence. Like, that's, you know, the strongest evidence we had against, you know, like Brett Kavanaugh during that hearing. Yeah. Those contemporaneous yeah, one, of, one of the important things to, one of the important points to make is the fact that that was one of the big pieces of evidence that we had uh, with Kavanaugh. As progressives, as humans, not even just progressives, as humans, we need to make sure that we are applying the same standards to everybody, regardless of party. Now, I will say that at the time of the Kavanaugh hearing, I was making the argument that there does need to be investigations, that people shouldn't just automatically conclude one way or another. Certainly. That we need to look at all the evidence. And I said at the time that there was clearly enough evidence to warrant an in-depth investigation. And mm -hmm. they had an investigation, but it was anything but in-depth. They weren't allowed to interview any witnesses which was ridiculous. And there were like 20 witnesses that asked to be interviewed. 
So it was a sham investigation from the beginning. So in that realm, the fact that there was a strong possibility of him becoming a Supreme Court justice, I argued at the time, means that we need to vote against him or we need to delay it until there is an actual in-depth investigation. Now, I don't come on the side of, no matter what, always believe any accusation someone makes. Now, I am more inclined to believe an accusation because it's extremely rare, rare for accusations to be made up. Yeah. And so when, when a lot of people say believe women, they're not necessarily saying accept the word of women without any evidence or b believe survivors without any evidence. The argument... Now, now, some people might be making that argument, but most people, I think, are making the argument that most of the time, if a person comes forward, there's not really much of an incentive to lie about it, considering how much their life is going to change. Mm -hmm. And that actually applies in this situation, too, because when Reed came forward initially, when she was went with the confirmed stuff of just unwanted touching that a lot of other women had come forward about, she was relentlessly attacked online for it. Mm -hmm. For just talking about how Biden made her feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And that actually made her not want to talk about this for a while. Now, some people might also be asking, well, wait a minute. Why does this seem to be happening right while, when he's about to clench the nomination, but before he has? Does this mean that there must be something convenient to it? Is she some Bernie supporter or Bernie agent? She actually started out as a Warren supporter. And she's actually been trying to come forward about this for the last few months. In fact, she actually reached out to Time's Up, which is an anti-harassment organization that is uh, dedicated to giving sexual assault survivors legal representation when they come forward to accuse powerful individuals of sexual assault. And they told her that they couldn't represent her in this because he was running for office. And they might lose their uh, nonprofit status, which I think is absolutely bogus. Because if if you're if if it's an organization that is dedicated to taking down powerful individuals who abuse their power, you're going to say that elected individuals don't count. That you're not that if it's an elected individual that you're just going to you're just going to ignore it. I mean, give me a break. And at the same time, you know they would be executing their function and purpose. And, you know, we're not legal experts, but it seems pretty strange that that would be counted as some kind of political donation or something like that, like a thing of value for or against a political candidate, which is what they wouldn't be allowed to provide. You know, this is a representation of an individual in a, in a legal claim. It's not an ad or something like that. But th along with those, th those points, like people have been... She's been trying to come forward with this. And to Nathan's point earlier, very few organizations have decided to cover it um, or investigate it in any substantive way. And a lot of um, organizations and people are trying to undermine her credibility rather than, you know, focus on whether this is true or not. So people saying, like to Nathan's point, that, you know, why did, if this is true, why didn't she come forward with it earlier? Um, 
and it seems like well her illustration of inappropriate contact earlier seems more like it's indicating a pattern than it would be undermining of her current claim other people have, have even said that she is like a plant for the bernie campaign or a plant for trump or even a russia a russian plant that she's like somehow pro pro yeah. putin and that's based off of this article that she had apparently written, I think it was for the Medium, a mm-hmm. uh, while back, in which she um, lobbed a bunch of praises at Vladimir Putin, which, to be fair, screw Putin. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> um, but it is important to address some of the context of that. Apparently, um, at the time, she had uh, read some of Noam Chomsky's older work, mm-hmm. um, and also... She was planning on writing a romance novel about Russia. Mm-hmm. And she says that when she learned more about um, the domestic abuse within Russia, that she changed her mind on it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that part's super important, too. So I think that mistakenly writing an article praising Russia in the past is hardly evidence that she's a Russian plant that is trying to destroy the United States, especially considering all of the other contexts that we've shared with you. The yeah. fact that she was working as a Biden staffer in 1993. And if, if her plan all along was, okay, so here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold on to that throughout several Senate campaigns that Biden will continue to run. And then he's going to run for vice president and I'm going to keep holding on to it. And then he's going to run for president and then I'm going to hold on to it to the very end of it. And then I'm going to tell everyone. Mm -hmm. Really? That'd be a weird plan. That's yeah. And ultimately, like if you have questions and there, there are so many questions, the point should be to get more information. Yeah. You know, and that is what news outlets and, you know, support from various investigators or even the dnc should be looking into at this point like we need to air this yeah we're not arguing that this is the end-all be-all it definitely happened shut down all discussion about it excommunicate joe biden no what we're arguing is that this needs to be talked about more. This needs yeah. to be addressed more. This needs to be reported on more. It needs to be taken seriously. Yeah. And even, you know, we can go back to Joe Biden's own words during the Kavanaugh hearing. He said, quote, for a woman to come forward in the glaring lights of focus nationally, you've got to start off with the presumption that at least the essence of what she's talking about is real. Yeah. And we have to apply that logic, whether it's a Democrat, whether it's a Republican. And at this point, I'm really hoping that people do take a second look at Joe Biden. And look, to be clear, I'm not saying this as someone that think that has any delusions that Joe Biden's not going to be the nominee. Mm-hmm. At this point, I think there's a strong possibility that he's going to be the nominee. And that means that in a practical sense, this probably helps Donald Trump the most. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to be principled, if we're going to be the advocates that we claim to be, the feminists, the supporters of sexual assault survivors, 
that we claim to be, that we want to be, that we were during the Kavanaugh hearing, that we have been during the many allegations that have been um, thrown at Donald Trump. We can't just forsake that when it's a Democrat. Yeah. That is absolutely true. Because this this is really important. Ha- electing someone to be a representative for the interests of survivors of sexual assault is electing someone to be a representative of the interests of the American people. Because survivors of sexual assault are everywhere. One in three women and one in six men have experienced some kind of contact sexual assault. So that means that one in four people in the U.S., 25% of Americans, are now or will be survivors of sexual assault. That makes them like one of the largest minorities of the American people. And nearly 70% of survivors of sexual assault are between 12 and 34 years old. So if you combine those two statistics I mentioned, that means 18% of Americans between 12 and 34 years old are or will be survivors of sexual assault. So having someone in the White House who can stand for their interests is having someone in the White House who stands for the interests of Americans. All right, and now we're going to go ahead and end this longer podcast and emotional roller coaster of a podcast with a high note. So we're going to discuss our highlights for the week. So, Michael, what, what were your highlights? My big highlight this past week was um, Bree and I got our final major piece of furniture for our house. We got a couple of bookcases, which meant that we were able to unpack all of our boxes full of books and get them on the shelf and like settle into our place much more fully. So now we like rearranged our house and I just feel so much more at home in our apartment now being able to, you know, not have boxes everywhere and have our stuff kind of put away. So now it really feels like home on top of having to spend, you know, every waking hour in my apartment. (laughs) That's really helped the settling in too. What about you, Nathan? Michael, my highlight this week has been coping using video games. So (laughs) I've been playing through the Mass Effect trilogy, which if any of you, for any of you that don't know what the Mass Effect trilogy is, it's this science fiction RPG video game in which the very last uh, the very last game involves a massive galaxy-wide invasion by these evil synthetic organic species of aliens that like are trying a virus. to kill us. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to kill and wipe out everybody. And you get to fight them and knock them back and kick their ass in the end. And while I've been and I've gotten to the third in the series, and I gotta say, it's been feeling very therapeutic. Um, getting out there know, and to, saving the world. <laughs> yeah, getting out. Well, the galaxy. Oh the galaxy. wow! That's yeah, uh, getting out there and saving the galaxy. Um, so that's kind of how I've been processing this. So uh, my highlight is video games. Nice. All right, and that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening and putting up with all the challenging news of the world. 
Um, we hope that listening to us makes it a little bit easier to comprehend and a little bit easier to take. So we'll uh, tune in next time. And thanks for listening to The Perspectrum. Perspectrum.